Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week we began talking about the difference between individual cognition and social cognition as a way of better understanding this self thing. The central point I made is that humans are fundamentally, but not always, Social cooperative creatures. We are designed by evolution to be that way, and it radically distinguishes us from the apes. Most of individual cognition serves and is served by social cognition. Virtually all of the higher cognitive functions, science, art, literature, spiritual practice, language itself, are fundamentally matters of cooperative social behavior and only marginally driven by the desire for individual gain. Virtually everything that we individually find deeply meaningful in life is a product of social cognition. It is not found within. Individually, we think, sometimes in very unique or quirky ways, but most of our thinking reflects and is reflected in the structure of social cognition, which extends and makes sense way beyond the scope of our individual thinking. I quoted last week the statement that human thinking is an individual improvisation enmeshed in a socio-cultural matrix. This means that even if you spend your days meditating in the jungle under a tree with little contact with society, you still sit there with culturally determined conceptualizations and values. In fact, Buddhism itself defines a kind of subculture that you will have brought with you, a subculture of awakening, most fully manifest in the monastic Sangha. It defines wholesome conceptualizations and values even while it teaches us to distrust conceptualizations across the board. This is why hanging out with wise practitioners and teachers is critical to progress on the path. Let me give some more examples of humans as social creatures for the unconvinced. Children engage in activities together from a very early age. So do young chimps. A big difference is that from about 14 to 18 months, children will share a common goal in their play. If little Timmy is interrupted for some reason from this cooperative context, then little Bobby will try to re-engage Timmy at the first possible opportunity. Little Bonzo would simply replan his activities on an individual basis. At three years, Timmy and Bobby would share a common commitment to continue the joint activity in spite of distractions, to share equitably the spoils of their activity, 
and in case of the fatal disruption, to acknowledge this misfortune and even apologize. Last week, we talked about the common ground shared by a set of people or by a whole cultural or ethnic group. Common ground is a very sophisticated thing. Take this set of people listening to this podcast. There is certain knowledge that we share. Say that humans and chimps are closely related genetically. This alone does not make it part of the common ground. I have to know that you know this, and you have to know that I know this. Moreover, I have to know that you know that I know this, and you have to know that I know that you know this. This recursion can go on and on. But sometimes what we think we know is wrong. So we have to recognize when our common ground is not properly constituted and take corrective action or recognize where our common ground fails. Each of us is involved in maintaining a multiplicity of common grounds in this way, just as many of us speak more than one language. Just keeping track of a common ground is an enormously sophisticated cooperative endeavor that we do without even noticing that we're doing something special. Apes cannot do any of this. Moreover, the common ground is very dynamic. A small common ground is often shared by a small group of people, perhaps all those physically present, that changes moment to moment. This is a common focus of attention. I know what you are thinking about. You know what I am thinking about. And I know that you know what I am thinking about and so on. We can't have a conversation without a certain amount of being able to read each other's minds. And how does that happen? Apes are very limited in knowing what other apes are thinking about and incapable of maintaining a content-rich common focus of attention. One key to how this is accomplished is a simple physical adaptation in the human species. The whites of our eyes are visible to others. No other ape or primate has this adaptation. The consequence is that we can look at another person and tell more or less what that person is looking at. We then tend to look in that same direction. A theory of mind has been proposed as a kind of simulation we are individually capable of running of someone else's mind. We observe their behavior, then imagine what we would be thinking if we were behaving like that. We certainly also run simulations like this based on facial expressions. Now, cooperative behavior involves effacing one's own interests in deference to others or in deference to a group, and effacing one's own perspective in favor of an objective perspective. There is a choice here, because humans are not thoroughly social creatures. We still have a full ape in each of us. Bees and ants are apparently entirely social, with no independent individual will. 
people are not like that, though they can be under certain circumstances. More generally, they cooperate to a degree and pursue personal interests to a degree. The balance varies from time to time and individual to individual. Cooperation requires that life be ordered and morally regulated by what we ought to do, structured by norms and standards, promises, obligations, conventions, things like that. Any culture demands a great deal of conformity. Ours tends to like nonconformists because we're individualists. As long as our nonconformity follows accepted standards, children at three years of age begin to enforce conformity in others. Co cooperation relies on scripts with defined rules for various actors teacher, student, doctor, patient, salesperson, customer and we readily assume roles and comply with their standard scripts, sometimes briefly like a, being a dental patient, sometimes professionally like being a dentist, and sometimes consistently just because we like the role, like biker chick or quirky disheveled bookworm. What makes the individual want to cooperate and adhere to an established order? Generally, we tend to think of this in terms of getting paid or in terms of coercion in our culture. Laws and enforcement, punishment, hierarchical structures of power, exploitation, public shaming, withdrawal of privileges. Here is another form of incentive that is often overlooked. When I was a kid, musicals were very popular as a movie genre. Wouldn't it be great if we could sing and dance our way through life like that, together and in unison, farmers plowing their fields, geeks banging out computer code? To a great extent, we can, and probably in our ancestral environment, we did even more than we do today. Our ancestral environment is a theoretical construct of the situation when most of our genetic evolution as humans was behind us, but when society and cultures were relatively unevolved. We lived in tribal units largely concerned with hunting and foraging. Since then, technology, especially agriculture, but now smartphones, have driven society into ever more complex forms. The song and dance that sustains cooperative behavior works non-coercively and non-selfishly. It is ritual, a kind of symbolic bodily performance of our roles and relations in society. Who would have thought? Ritual is one of those aspects of society that has been deprecated seemingly through the same historical development that gave us the Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, and now hyper-individualism. But it has been with us all along in all the social scripts we follow. Think of how birthdays are celebrated 
or marriages and deaths, graduations, Christmas and New Year's celebrations, swearings in. For Thanksgiving, what we eat and when we eat is largely mandated by tradition, it's ritual, and within families, who visits whom. Sports events are dense with ritual. Interpersonal relations are marked by handshakes, hugs, tipping in the hat has gone by the wayside, polite forms of address and behavior. Dating is highly ritualized. Subcultures have their own forms of rituals. Bikers, for instance, follow standards of attire, jeans, boots, dark colors, bottom heavy. Transportation, of course, music and behavior. Office behavior is highly ritualized, including norms of attire, who gets a window in their office, and who gets a cubicle. Greeting, signs of deference, and so on. Even barroom brawls have a ritual aspect, a standard script of insult and counter-insult and standing one's ground. Military service is highly ritualized. Ritual is a kind of dance both of bodily movement, and it even breaks into song for birthdays and New Year's. Ritual is how we enact or put on a performance of our social roles and relations. They help us develop solidarity and harmonize ourselves, define ourselves in terms of the larger society, integrate us into that society, and make us feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. Rituals are very powerful in driving our cooperative behavior, often overriding our own self-interests as we try to keep up with the beat. This is perhaps most evident in military units, particularly in combat situations in which soldiers risk their own lives to protect their buddies. Ex-soldiers often miss the unprecedented camaraderie and bonding of their time in service. All the ritualized behavior in military service undoubtedly contributes to that. The salutes, marching, deferential forms of address, appropriate attire for different occasions, marching, parades, and more marching. Being a soldier requires every incentive to induce people to get shot at and blown up cooperatively. Coercion is a large part of it, and pay, alongside ritual performance of this expected role. There is also an even more powerful incentive, common cause around a threat to something considered sacred, The military unit becomes sacred. So does the nation. We witness this in the spontaneous response of many Ukrainians to the Russian invasion, the American response to 9-11 or to Pearl Harbor. Jonathan Haidt talks about a hive switch. Under certain conditions, it is as if someone flicks a switch and we as one let go of our selfish interests, and join as one in a common cause, much like hive-dwelling creatures, bees and ants, must defeat alien cyborg invaders. We observe something similar when strangers rush to the aid 
of someone in peril, like in a burning house, at risk of their own lives. The nice thing about ritual as a driver of cooperation is that it does not depend on coercion. It is gentle. One can choose to join in or not, shake the offered hand or not, take the marriage vows or not. But joining in is a kind of commitment to carry through. Now, where is the self in all of this? We are still present as individual actors, and we can function cooperatively for the greater good, or we can function in our own interests, or we can function in both ways at once. Self-interest entailing greed and hatred has been with us evolutionarily since way before the apes and is still with us. Apparently, ants and bees are selfless. Now we bring it into our improvisation in a socio-cultural matrix. In order to succeed in that world, we require sophisticated social skills. Chief among these is to present oneself as worthy partners in cooperative endeavors in order to enjoy our share of the fruits of such endeavors. This requires careful attention to how we present ourselves to others. It turns out that self-presentation involves a swarm of evolutionary adaptations in order to win friends and influence people. The principle is to manipulate the assessments others might have of us to make us appear as valuable as possible in the social world. This function has been compared to a press secretary. In general, high value is associated with things like niceness, integrity, fairness, competence, intelligence, strength, and attractiveness, though the criteria are largely culturally determined or determined by what kind of relationship we are seeking in a particular situation. In general, we want to present a consistent picture of ourselves that fits into an identifiable role or personality type so that our behavior becomes predictable. Among our adaptations are deception through inflating our attributes and behaving with unwarranted confidence, self-deception as a support for deceiving others, ability to detect deception in others, rational justifications for our behaviors, accepting or denying responsibility after the fact in a self-serving way, self-esteem as a subjective gauge of others' assessments, emotional responses to changes in self-esteem to drive appropriate responses, and tenacious protection of social status and personal identity. These describe processes that are meaningful in terms of social cognition. Next week, I'll explore the idea that self-presentation in social contexts is the basis of both the Buddhist ego self, the one we want to get rid of, 
end of the modern authentic self, the one we are determined to discover, develop, and express. Thank you.